But I wanted to begin by telling of July 8, 1741. On July 8, 1741, Jonathan Edwards preached his sermon. Everyone knows what that sermon is. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. He didn't actually preach it once. He preached it multiple times. And on this day, he wasn't able to finish it. He wasn't able to finish because the impact of his preaching was that the people listening shrieked and cried out. And the crying and weeping became so loud that Edwards was forced to discontinue the sermon. Instead, pastors who had gathered, there's kind of a gathering, went down among the people and prayed with them in groups. Many came to a saving knowledge of Christ that day. So was this a day of great spiritual revival or of great deception? Was God and his kingdom growing or was the devil manipulating people into chaos? Now these aren't just questions we ask today. Even at that time there were people who argued against this saying this is deceptive, manipulative practices being done by the devil. Charles Chauncey was one who at first supported these revivals and then became one of its most outspoken critics against it, saying it was not led by the Spirit of God. In response, Jonathan Edwards wrote, and if you know Jonathan Edwards, wrote a long treatise, uh, The Distinguishing Marks of the Spirit, in which he laid out, How can we know if a work is from God? And yet this is not anything new. This actually goes back to where we are going to be camped for the next couple months, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, because we are going to be looking at spiritual gifts. You see, the devil is sort of like a ninja judo master. Whatever your greatest move, he lets you do it and then uses it against you. So he's very happy if the country or people are going to go to apathy to encourage them in their apathy away from God. Yet if there is excitement and growth and revival in the Lord, then he goes, great, I'll infiltrate that and I'll do things to make it look bad, to make people appear to be spiritual when they are not. So over the next few weeks, months, we'll be looking at how can we know if something is truly from the Spirit of God? Who is even given the Spirit of God? What does the Spirit give us? And how should we use it? Uh, this morning, though, I want us to note, recognize that not all ignorance is bliss. You may have heard that. Ignorance is bliss. Well, sometimes bliss can kill you if it's that type of bliss. And here, Paul is going to tell them that not all ignorance is bliss. Let's read 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 3. Paul writes, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, I have lots of verses we're going to look at, so... If you don't want to read, that's fine, but I'm going to pass out some verses. Jerry, can you turn to 1 Corinthians 7.1, Arnaldo 7.25, Katrina 8.1, uh, Amira 12.1, Royal 15.1, and Keith 16.1, all 1 Corinthians. Now, all these are in 1 Corinthians because it seems as you read through the letter of 1 Corinthians that at first Paul gives some general instructions, and then beginning in chapter 7, verse 1, he starts interacting with all of these things that they have written to him about. So, Jerry, chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. All right, so here, this starts all these now concerning things, and now he starts with how should a man relate to his wife sexually, and how should singles relate, and all these things. Um, and it's about these things that you wrote. Or, Arnold, did I give you 725? Okay. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command. And then he goes on. So 7 1 continued, 7 25 continues on that theme. Or chapter 8, verse 1, Katrina. So then after that, he takes that introduction and goes from chapters 8 all the way through 10. 
or 11, one I would argue, say, arguing for how we should relate to food offered to idols. Or then in chapter 12, verse 1. Yeah, so now, 12 through 14, he's talking about spiritual gifts, or royal, chapter 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preach to you, which also you receive, in which you stand. So there, it starts, now I, and he's using a similar idea to then talk about the resurrection, and lastly, 16.1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. So there's all these various things. And here, in chapter 12, he's beginning to talk to them about spiritual gifts. And you can notice here that they're having problems because they're either becoming fixated with the ecstatic or the dramatic spiritual gifts or they're denouncing them, saying, no, we shouldn't be doing that. And Paul's going to spend three chapters explaining to them what spiritual gifts are and showing them what their goal is, why God has given them. And in this discussion, he'll sometimes focus on spiritual gifts, and sometimes he'll talk more broadly. But he begins by saying, I don't want you to be uninformed. And the word for uninformed, or your Bible might say ignorant or unaware, comes from ag noain, which you might hear the word in there, no, G-N-O, like gnosis, gnostics, you probably have heard of them before. Gnostics were all about Knowledge, secret knowledge that supposedly you needed so you could know the Lord. So he doesn't want them to be ah, that's a negative. No, he doesn't want them to be ignorant or be without knowledge. And that's really a great place for us to begin our discussion on spiritual gifts because there's often three ways Christians respond when there are disagreements within the church. Uh, there's the so-called, I put it in quotes on purpose, the love group. What is the love group focused on? Only God's love. Okay, only God's love. Mercy. Okay, well, those are good. What about when a discussion comes up in the church and Ty starts saying one thing and Arnold starts saying the other and Keith, the love guy, says, "Let's all just get along." Let's all just get along. <laughs> Kumbaya, unity. We're one in the spirit, guys. Let's just, you both worship Jesus. Let's not. Let's just not talk about it. And so there's this. Love camp, we might say. I put that again, quotes, because I don't think that actually is love, and we'll get into that some. But we see this more and more. Uh, in 2013, John MacArthur had a conference entitled Strange Fire. I'm not commending or condemning that conference. I'm just bringing it up as an example, because there's a lot of people who responded to the conference basically saying, well, let me back up and say, Strange Fire was about uh, critiquing the charismatic movement from a biblical perspective. And whether you agree with it or not, a large criticism was, how in the world can he think he's right? He, he can't know that we've been arguing this for years. Trevin Wax writes, Unfortunately, much of the controversy surrounding this conference seems to me less like Christians making the case for their respective positions and more like postmodern aversion to saying someone could be right or wrong. In fact, some of the criticism launched at MacArthur seem to imply that MacArthur is wrong simply for being sure he's right, as if certainty or confidence is at odds with humility. We must not surrender to the postmodern ethos of our time that would deny the possibility of discovering what is true and false, right and wrong. God has revealed himself in his word. We may disagree on how clearly he has revealed himself on this issue, but we cannot surrender to the idea that truth and error do not exist or think that both sides can be right. And I don't know about you, but I've been in conversations with Christians and all of a sudden they'll just say, well, Christians have disagreed for years, as though that's just to say, okay, so we can't talk about it. Or they may say, well, I'm just agnostic on that issue. Well, what are they saying when they say that? <laughs> that, that may be what we think of them, but what are they trying to come? I'm they? <laughs> okay. Or they don't agree with what the Bible says, so they don't want to discuss it. Or it could be that, but giving them the best charitable light. What is an agnostic trying to say? You can't stay no. neutral. Yes, yeah, so they're trying to take what is seemingly a middle position. We can't know. It's impossible. An atheist says. We, God does not exist. And agnostic and released to 
God's existence is saying we can't know. Yes, maybe God exists, maybe he doesn't. I'm agnostic. We can't know. Yes, can't confirm or deny. And so a lot of people, oh, spiritual gifts, I'm agnostic. Except that's the exact thing Paul says he doesn't want us to be. He says, I do not want you to be agnoine. I do not want you to be agnostic on spiritual gifts. So he's very clear, I want you to know. And even on lesser matters, we have here at Romans 14, 5. Christina, would you turn there for us? Romans 14, 5 there. Paul is talking on an issue of even lesser importance. What days should we observe to the Lord? And notice what he says. Okay. One person esteems one day as better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He doesn't say, ah, this is not that port of an issue, so you know what? Ty, Arnold, let's just be friends. Kumbaya. No, on even a less important issue than spiritual gifts, he says, no, every one of you should think this out. Every one of you should be fully convinced in your own mind where you stand on this issue. And so if we should be fully convinced on issues that are Christian freedoms, because that's what he's arguing for in Romans 14, then we should definitely be fully convinced on issues of secondary doctrinal importance like speaking in tongues or other spiritual gifts. Now I use the term secondary because secondary implies there's primary. So what might be a primary doctrine that to be a Christian at any time in any place you have to believe it to be a Christian? Jesus is the Son of God. But people have been debating that for years. People have been saying for years that he could have been or he wasn't. So what? To be a Christian, you have to affirm Jesus was the Son of God. The New Testament even says that. What might be other primary doctrines that you have to believe? He was both God and man. Yes, not just the Son of God. He's also Son of Man. The Trinity died literally and rose again on the third day. First Corinthians 13, Paul's clear. You have to believe this. We could give many others that it is essential to believe. Now, this is not just us Christians who like to be sticks in the mud. This is true of almost any organization. I doubt the local PETA group is fine with having meat butchers in their club. They'd probably say, well, that actually goes against our beliefs. If you want to join our PETA group, you have to stop believing it's okay to butcher animals. Like That's part of the whole thing. <laughs> to be a Christian... You actually have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He was also man, that He died and rose again, that He's part of the Trinity and all of these essentials. They are primary and secondary. Now, yes? Um, if a person says they don't believe that Jesus is God, but yet the person believes He's only the Son of God, is that person still a believer? Well, I would not say they're a Christian. Now, it could be... Now, we need to be clear. It could be that they are just not articulating themselves clearly. And as you talk to them, you know, we're not going to get to the entrance of heaven and be slid a theological exam. Can you explain justification by faith accurately? Can you articulate the Trinity in an orthodox position? <laughs> so, I, want, I would say yes. When you talk to them, they do need to affirm that Jesus not only is the Son of God, they, that He is God. At the same time, we baptized Hudson last week. He could probably talk to someone who confuses him for a few minutes and he says something and we are uh, not a Christian. We'd talk to him and help Hudson understand, okay, these Bible verses show us Jesus is the Son of God and he is God. So yes, you need to believe that. We want to give people time to explain themselves. It's not you say one wrong thing. I mean, I've prayed things in a prayer that were heretical. Didn't want to. I'm not saying that's fine. But, so that Keith, you want to add something? I was thinking of the thief on the cross. I mean, what did he know? Not much. He knew he was a wretch, and he knew this guy was offering him eternal life. And he put his faith and trust in him. What did he know about him? Really vague. Yeah. Probably didn't have any of the answers, but he knew enough. He knew what he knew. Yeah. 
That's what God holds us accountable to. Yes, exactly. Good point. So I, there's. I, I think ignorance is acceptable on day one. Awesome. But if you're a Christian, you're going to strive to be like Christ. You're going to strive to learn, and as, as you're walking the walk, you gain gain lots of knowledge. Definitely, good good addition there. So there's these primary, but then we also have to realize there's secondary Christian truths that are not essential for salvation, but I would say they are essential to function as a local church. Like, we can't say we're a local autonomous church and there's this bishop in Dallas who can tell us what to do. Well, those are contradictory things. We either are a local autonomous church that we think we should be based on scripture or we submit to the rule of a bishop. You can't actually believe both at the same time. It's impossible. Um, spiritual gifts. We, have, we don't have written in our documents exactly what we should believe, but there are some things we would affirm and some things that you would need to do to function in our church. And so some of these are important and they're essential for life as a body, but they're not essential for being a Christian. And so we need to keep that in mind that we should know Paul does not want us to be agnostic. And yet the other side of the love, and love is again in quotes, is the truth mindset. As we said, we should reach and study conclusions. However, we should also note there have been historical disagreements on some of these secondary matters, and we should hold our views with grace. Um, thus, those who maybe hold a different view on church government, as I mentioned, or baptism, we don't all make up. Uh, they're not Christians. They're not submitting to Scripture. No, we need to be honest. We should say we think it's a sin to baptize infants. Some people, oh, let's just be honest. That's what we're saying. But they also think it's a sin for us not to be baptizing infants. So we don't need to sugarcoat it. But we also don't need to say they're non-Christians. They are trying to submit themselves to the Lordship of Christ. We just think they're doing it wrongly on a secondary matter. Just as they think we're doing it wrongly. And one day we'll know for sure. But nonetheless, some of these issues we should hold firmly, but yet graciously. And yet some Christians, you've probably met some Christians, who hold every issue as a, this is the issue that we must die on. I had a friend in college, he was a roommate for a couple years, and his dad was an elder at a good church. And then his church was waffling, and so he went and planted his own church. And then people in his church were not sticking to the truth, so he made sure the church was pure, and no kidding, after a few years, it was him and his wife. I mean, everyone was so impure that basically it could just be him and his wife. That was truth, but that's not actual truth, and it's not being truth in love. And that even on these issues, there can often be a lack of charity. Some people believe if you're not exercising all of the gifts that happen in the New Testament, that you're just a lifeless dead church other people say if you're exercising some of the gifts all the gifts in the new testament then all you are is being led by demons and nothing good is coming from you well i think we could maybe have more charity in the way we express those things and sadly in these discussions sometimes the way people express other people's positions is not very loving you've probably been hearing people discuss an issue, and they express your side, put your side in quotes, and you're thinking, that's not what I believe at all. Like, that's such a caricature or straw man of what I believe. You know, in love, we should listen to the other side, and then we should be able to articulate their position just as well as they would. In words, they were that at the end, they could go, that's what I believe. Actually, he says it better than I do. And then, show them from Scripture where they're wrong. And so we need both of those. And we see that even here. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. John, could you read those verses for us? 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So, 
if we get to the end of this study and we know spiritual gifts, but we don't exercise love, then this whole series was worse than nothing. It was bad. It led us to the exact opposite of what God is trying to work in us. So we need to know. We also need to know and be gracious and loving in the way we express that. Ty, could you turn to Ephesians 4.15 for us? Because here, there's another passage talking about spiritual gifts. And there he's talking about the goal. And if you would read Ephesians 4, actually 15 and 16. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So, we'll see this as we go. The church is built up as every part is using their spiritual gifts, and we do this as we speak the truth in love. So we need both of these working together. But as we're beginning this series, I wanted to hear from y'all. You hear the term spiritual gifts. What comes to your mind? Speaking in tongues is the one. Yeah. Okay, speaking in tongues. <laughs> I tend to go like to the to the far side of the people who are extreme who like are overly charismatic and although I know that that's not all it encompasses. Okay. Benny Hen. Benny Hen. Okay, prophecies over people? I think of ignorance. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't mean like, I mean in the church not realizing that you're gifted, that you are gifted needfully for the growth of the body. And it breaks my heart when I see people who are gifted and they're not using those gifts in the church for the building up of the church. Yeah. As every joint supplies, we are built up into maturity. Other people, what comes to your mind when you hear spiritual gifts? Okay. Discernment, maybe. Discernment? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good spiritual gift. Uh, what is your personal history with spiritual gifts? Roy, have you had a prophecy spoken over you? Okay. Yeah. I used to go to the church with my cousins, had like a guest, like a guest pastor or something like that. Okay. And he was like, just pray over everybody over the line and stuff and stuff like that. I had a prophecy spoken over me that I was going to marry a girl. The guy also wanted gas money, but I don't know if that had anything to do with it. But I didn't marry the girl, so. And I don't think I gave him gas money either. <laughs> There you go. See, I should have put my seed money in. <laughs> yes? I was Pentecostal from 2003 to 2010 in my high school, college years, and um, the I think of it uh, as oftentimes being a pursuit of power, uh, and but also connection with the Lord, that emotional connection, that emotional experience, a demonstration of God's power oftentimes is what it'll look like, but it also can lead to confusion and um, and lead to chasing after experiences and uh, kind of performance Christianity um, and uh, a greater focus on that than the words God has already spoken to him waiting for a word instead of taking him at his word some have said alright other yes Keith when I was in college um as a new believer, uh, there were a lot of Pentecostals in the Bible study I went to, and they were sharing with me that if I were truly saved, that I would be speaking in tongues. And so, you know, there was a lot of pressure that the certain gifts be manifest in my life to testify, and that was really uncomfortable. Yeah, and we'll be hitting on a lot of these issues as we go through, but uh, these things are really any other experiences? The only thing I've ever had like that was Kate and I were at Walmart and I was very big pregnant with Haddon 
and this guy came up and was like, put his hand on my stomach when we were getting our cart to go into the store and starts talking like gibberish and we were like, whoa, and she like stepped in between us and like pushed him back and was like, um, we don't know what you're saying. And he's like, I'm praying for your baby. And I'm like, I pray for my own baby, thank you. <laughs> Just walked away. But it, and it threw me off, like for the whole day I was so uncomfortable and like, I don't know, I have no idea if he met Neil Harm or if he, I mean, he was a, didn't look like a, you know, homeless guy that was gonna ask me for gas money. I, but. That's the only experience, like personal experience I've ever had, but it did not feel spiritual to me. <laughs> All right, one more question, then we'll move on. Why do we need to remember both things, that this is a secondary doctrinal issue, and also that we should have convictions on it personally and as a church? Wait, will you ask so that why one more time? Is it secondary and yet have convictions? Yeah, because sometimes we'll take secondary, so we shouldn't have convictions, or they'll say... We should have convictions and make it primary, but I'm saying we need to have both in our minds, that it is actually secondary, and also we should have convictions. We shouldn't just go, ah, we can't know. We'll just move on. I think it's important to know when it comes to secondary things what your own personal convictions are and how God has convicted you because certain things can be a stumbling block in your life that are not to others. And so you say, for 12 years, I didn't drink but my husband has a beer sometimes, and that was okay. Like, and it didn't bother me to say, you do this because this isn't your conviction, it's mine. And I, I can't put that on you. It's a secondary issue. I choose to stay far away from the line, and you know how close you can get without crossing it. And the, both of those things are okay. Okay, good. It's a secondary issue, but on a very primary area, because the Holy Spirit saves us. The Holy Spirit's the only entity in existence that's going to fulfill the Great Commission or give us the ability to uh, do that through us and so it's really important for us to reconcile how we're pursuing the Great Commission and discipling others and serving His Kingdom throughout our lives and uh, the stuff that was talked about in Acts and First Corinthians is pretty wild <laughs> and like and so we should we be seeking he says we should seek the gift of prophecy you know and so it's, it's definitely important to wrestle with I think yeah well, and it can be damaging if we don't. I mean, one, actually, Paul tells us not to be ignorant, so we should, we're commanded. So that's got to be one of our things. Well, if you're like Keith and you come across some Christians who are saying, well, you may not be a Christian, you're not doing this. Well, that's a pretty serious charge, so hopefully you don't just go, eh, well, we just disagree, it's okay. <laughs> you got eternity on the line, you should be informed and... If they're wrong, out of love, you should tell them, well, you're actually putting stumbling blocks in front of believers and you're adding to salvation if you're saying you have to do this to be saved. But all that being said, let's jump into what Paul's saying here. He then says, now concerning spiritual gifts. Now we haven't even gotten very far. Four words. We already run into our first disagreement. Because the word, I put it on your page there, is pneumaticon. Now, What's a pneumatic tool? Some of y'all have probably heard that. Air. Air, tool. Air tool. Air pressure. If you go get your tires changed, they're using pneumatic tools to get those lug nuts on and off so that when you're on the side of the road, you can't get it. You've got to get someone to come help you because they put them on too tight. But nonetheless, new air tools. Pneuma is for air or spirit. And so pneuma is the word for spirit. And he says, I now concerning pneumatic cone. Now, pneumatic cone, the way it's written, can be, I'm not trying to be too technical, but could be masculine, having gender. It could be people or beings. So it could be now concerning spiritual people or spiritual beings. And for sake of time, we won't turn there, but I put three passages there. We'll look at one of them, where it's very clear when Paul uses that term, he means spiritual beings. So just turn over two chapters, 1 Corinthians 14, 37. For there he says, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, same term. He's talking clearly about a person, and he uses this term. But there are other times this exact same term, not this word, but the way it's used, it's case, gender, number, if you know all that stuff, is neuter, where it would be spiritual things or gifts. And I gave you two examples, perhaps 1546 as well. But if you look at chapter 14, verse 1, it says, Pursue love, 
and earnestly desire the pneumaticum. Well, there it clearly seems to be referring to gifts. So even within these three chapters, he uses the term both ways. So what does he mean here at the beginning? Is he referring to spiritual gifts or spiritual beings? And I'm going to say, I think he's really kind of referring to both. I think he meant one, and I think they all knew, because remember, they had sent Paul a letter. Paul's responding to that letter, so they know exactly what he means by that term. But the issue, is we're going to see, is that they're being boastful because I'm spiritual. And why do they think they're spiritual? Because they're exercising some spiritual gifts. So the two are really kind of tied together. The reason they think they are more superior spiritual beings is because of the spiritual gifts. So if you want to know what you are to be spiritual, then understand the spiritual gifts or vice versa. But that then jumps into another issue. What today do we say it means to be spiritual? A lot of people today, I'm spiritual but not religious. I do yoga on a mountainside. <laughs> okay. Or in a studio. Yeah. With my cross, my with my cross chain on at the same time. Not just believe in one thing, but believe in many things. Okay. I think in most cases, uh, it's kind of like that agnostic spirit to it. It's like you're not like fully convicted about one thing. Like, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but possibly other things may be true too. Or something like that. Uh, universalism. Yeah. It's like they recognize the God-shaped hole, and but they don't know what specifically it is to fill it, and so they fill it with just kind of spiritual. Yeah. And Paul is going to bring this up, and then he's going to immediately show that not everything claiming to be spiritual is from God's Spirit. I'm going to read again verses 2 through 3. For there he says, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. And it begins here by contrasting what they are doing now that they know is in the Spirit of God in their former pagan life. And he does this by referring to the mute idols they went to and led them astray. I mentioned earlier these, this video series, still up here, no, no dashing for it afterwards. But if you want to borrow missionary Tim Cassie, who's going various parts of the world, and one of them, it's not one of the ones up here, I believe, he goes to India. And there he was in India during the time right before one of their worship celebrations. And he goes to one of the shops, and they, you know, shops, you can kind of see the front of them, are men working, they got straw, they got clay, they got some paint, and you can just see them forming the straw, putting the clay on it, letting it dry for a couple days, then painting it, selling it, and then what do people do? They buy them and go bow down to them. I mean, it seems, from our perspective... Really foolish. And the Bible is very clear. It is very foolish. This thing can't talk. You just literally made it a couple days ago. Or someone made it and you bought it from them. It can't speak. You have to lift it and carry it. Set it down and then you worship it. And the Bible critiques our idols as well. But here Paul's reminding them of their former life. That they used to be led by mute idols as well. And he's bringing this up because some of the things they do are maybe similar. He's saying look. Don't get too excited. You were able to do ecstatic stuff when you were led by evil spirits. So not everything that's ecstatic, not everything that seems spiritual actually is. You experienced some of that when you were a pagan. And then he gives them kind of a negative and a positive test of knowing that it is from the Spirit of God. First, negatively, someone who is filled with God's Spirit will never say, Jesus is accursed. Now, why would someone who claims to be a Christian ever say Jesus is a curse? It could be that Paul's raising a hypothetical situation, just kind of letting them know. Uh, I think, I didn't find any commentary that agreed with this, so I'm holding this very loosely. But I think it's tied to 1 Corinthians 1, where they were saying, well, the cross is foolishness. Yes. And I think they're, Paul's saying, look, someone can't be saying, well, the Son of God wouldn't have really died Son of God wouldn't have been put to death. That, he would have been cursed. 
And he's saying, no, no one in the Spirit of God can ever say Jesus is accursed. They can't say that. On the flip side, positively, only someone who is truly filled with God's Spirit will say Jesus is Lord. Now, the point is not merely saying the phrase, Jesus is Lord, saves you, as though maybe we could trick people. Hey, read this. And in it they say, Jesus is Lord. Ha <laughs> ha, you said it. Or it's not saying that people have their tongues tied. They're unable. They can't say that phrase. And even later, we'll look at Matthew 7, where people actually say, didn't we call you Lord? The point is that their lips are professing what's going on in their heart. Well, what does the term Lord mean? Master. Master. Authority. No one can die to themselves, die to the world, live for Christ, except the Spirit of God does that in their life, is what he's saying. You know, at that time, what would it mean for them, y'all know this, many of you do, for them to say, Jesus is Lord? What would that have meant culturally, politically, socially? Yes. Denouncing Caesar. Okay, denouncing Caesar. This might mean your head. Denouncing your belief might mean you're not coming to family gatherings anymore. You're an outcast in your society. And so this would have taken the Spirit of God to lead someone to do this. And so this was very costly. And yet there's an important implication in this. And that is that every believer, every true believer, has the Spirit of God. Because no one can say this unless the Spirit of God is in them, compelling them, leading them to say this. Now we're talking a few weeks, Ephesians 5.18, even after we're believers, Paul says be filled with the Spirit. But we need to start with the foundational issue that every Christian, every person who believes in Christ, when they do, has the Holy Spirit. Uh, we'll go throughout these weeks talking about various spiritual gifts, but we need to be clear, you do not need to do any spiritual gift or have any spiritual gift per se to be saved in contrast to Keith's friends in college. If you trust in the Son of God, confess your sins, turn to Him, you're saved and you are given the Spirit of God. But here, Paul begins by kind of holding off the two extremes. He's one saying, look, you can't just write everything off. You can't just say anything they do is wrong. Because, hey, if they're living their life as Jesus is Lord, now he's not giving them a pass on everything they do, but he's saying, look, then they have the Spirit of God. You just can't write them all off. On the flip side, you can't go, well, it's ecstatic. It's dramatic. Look, people are coming to faith. It has to be from God. Well, no. He's saying, eh, both those extremes are wrong. We need to go, look, if their life is showing submission to the Lordship of Christ, if they're honoring God, it's probably not the devil doing that. Now, yes, does the devil quote Bible verses? Yes. Does the devil appear as an angel of light? Yes. So we need to be careful, but it's not just, oh, that was kind of crazy. They're all not Christians. Oh, they're not using some of these gifts. Uh, they're not Christians. And he's going, look, let's... Let's see, are they honoring Christ? And that's where he begins. But I think it's a good place to ask some questions and we'll fly through the last section. When have Christians maybe wrongly written off some things as being false because of some of the extremes? No dancing. Okay. Those people are dancing in their church. Yeah, I think one of the big ones many people wrote off because it was too extreme is Pentecost. <laughs> you know, oh, this can't be from God. They're acting like they're drunk. Well, that's kind of extreme what they're doing. No, let's explain to you how this is actually from the Spirit of God. Now, what might be times people go the other way and they've assumed something is true just because there is dramatic experiences. After by people 
people trying to like harness that power. Yeah. Want the power. Simon Magus, I think his name is. Acts 8. So, we have these two extremes. I think it would be helpful, and we're going to go through this pretty quickly, to begin seeing, well, what broadly is the work of the Spirit? Because as we understand broadly the work of the Spirit, I think that will help us as we go through 1 Corinthians 12. And I'm getting this. I have it on there. J.I. Packer's book, Keep in Step with the Spirit. And what he argues, and I think he is right, is often what we do is what we do in many debates. And that is we focus on something true, and the person we're debating against is focusing on something that's true, and we just keep talking past each other because <laughs> we're talking about true things, and we need to go, well, how is this actually true? And this is true, and we hold them together. So some people, when they talk about the Spirit, they talk about, this is what Joseph mentioned earlier, power. Uh, Shauna, can you turn to Acts 1.8? Marie, can you turn to Romans 15.13? And Jerry, back to you, Ephesians 3.16. And we should emphasize that the Spirit gives us power. Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. All right, okay, well, that was to the apostles. Well, no. Romans 15.13. Overflow with hope by the power of the Spirit. How are we going to have hope? We need the Spirit's power. Ephesians 3.16, Jerry, this is Paul saying, I'm praying for you, and this is in the midst of what he's praying for them. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with the power through his Spirit in the inner man. So, some Christians emphasize this, and we should too. His point is, we so emphasize one part of the Spirit that we don't mention the other. So we should, in your life, you should be praying. Paul's praying for this. Would you help us to have the power of the Spirit in our lives? To overcome, well, we'll look at these other. Often people emphasize performance. Now, Packer's really trying to get these Ps, so some of them kind of have to be explained. (laughs) Maybe a little too focused on alliteration. But here he's talking about using spiritual gifts. And that's really what 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is all about. And some people, when they talk about the spirit, what's it mean to be spiritual? Well, you're doing these spiritual gifts. And as we'll see, I think everyone should be using spiritual gifts. As Keith said, everyone is gifted spiritually. What does that look like? Well, we'll take a couple months to unpack that. Um, But we need to be clear, as we already noted, Matthew 7, many people do what appear to be spiritual gifts. They prophesy in Jesus' name. They do all these things in Jesus' name, but he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Uh, Arnold, would you turn to Galatians 5, 16 and 17? Katrina, could you turn to 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10? Amira, could you turn to Psalm 119, 18? Royal, John 15, 26. These are on your page. Um, And lastly, Christina, John 16, 13 through 14. Because... The Spirit gives us power. The Spirit gives us the ability to have gifts that we use for the church. The Spirit also leads us into purity. This is the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 16 and 17. When I say walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So there's this battle in us, the spirit and the flesh. And the spirit is trying to wage war against the flesh so we might be morally pure. And he goes on in that chapter to give the fruit of the spirit. Then the spirit also, and I would say probably purity is the one that when I grew up, that in this next is what was probably emphasized the most and less power and performance. But nonetheless, the Spirit presents to us. He helps us to understand spiritual things. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So there, how do we know God, the secret things? Through the Spirit. And there he's talking about the Word 
I'm not going to turn there, but Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel is called to come and prophesy over dead bones. And what happens when he prophesies, the spirit comes like a wind and they come to life. The spirit brings life. He presents us. And now this is not just, okay, well, to be saved, even after we're saved, we still need God to help us to know, to understand spiritual things. Psalm 119, 18. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. I mean, this is David, the man, I believe it's David, Psalm 119, uh, who has all these beautiful psalms, is writing this beautiful psalm, and is still crying out, open my eyes to see things in your law. Now, that's more than just recognize them, to understand them, to grasp them is what he's saying. And all of these, though, can be encapsulated that really the Spirit's role, whether it's to give us power, to help us use spiritual gifts, to have purity, to be alive to spiritual things, it's really focusing us on Christ because he's the one. His resurrection power gives us power. His service is what helps us to understand spiritual gifts. His life is what compels us to purity. He's the one who makes us alive spiritually. And we see this power and presence of Jesus, person and presence, being the Spirit's role in John 15, 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. So the Spirit's role is to testify about Christ, or John 16, 13 to 14. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the spiritual showing them, the apostles, what was Jesus' words to them? I'll end with this quote from J.I. Packer and then some questions for us. He says, when flood lighting is well done, the flood lights are so placed that you do not see them. You're not, in fact, supposed to see where the light is coming from. What you're meant to see is just the building on which the flood lights are trained. The intended effect is to make it visible when otherwise it would not be seen for the darkness and to maximize its dignity by throwing all its details into relief so you see it properly. The spirit, so to speak, is the hidden flood light shining on the Savior. And that's what the Spirit does, is He helps us focus not on Himself, but on the Son of God who came. And in that, though, I think there is a role for us to stop and understand what is the Spirit. Or to use this analogy, at times you go, well, let's look at the floodlights for a little bit and understand them. Because, one, we're told to, and two, it's part of the Trinity that we should worship and adore. As I was preparing, I came a cross an interesting thought question. I don't know what I think yet, but it's interesting to me that in our uh, broadly evangelical circles, we don't follow the Christian calendar in the way that, you know, follow these days. But we do <coughs> celebrate Christmas, Christ's birth, and we do celebrate Easter. We normally have something distinct on those days. But we don't celebrate Pentecost. I don't know, that just kind of struck me as odd. Is that a sign that maybe as evangelicals we don't emphasize the role of the Spirit enough? Or is that not important? Now, I'm not arguing that we need to, if we don't celebrate Pentecost, we're sinning, just as I think you could not celebrate Christmas and Easter. It's not in Scripture. But I think it's, it was just made me go, huh, that's interesting. And then I go, when is Pentecost? I don't even know what Sunday that is. It's the seventh Sunday after Easter, because I looked it up. <laughs> do, so the broad question is, do we in our circles emphasize the Spirit of God enough? And this is maybe personal. It's, it's one of the harder things to, because you have to start with, and we also, I think, we become cynical as well to people outside. Like, I think of my sister-in-law, who God told me, you know, or, you know, her conscience is telling her to do something, her personal conscience, but she takes it as, that's the Spirit of God. So I think there's that inner struggle of, is this the Spirit of God, or is this just my conscience? You know, and are is there a difference, or are they intertwined? It's also not, a, not actually. That's I, true. Probably not a true. I don't, and I think we become, we, as you grow in Christ, you kind of become cynical of you know, people who 
saw a sign in the clouds, or you know, like, well, that's cool providence, maybe, but maybe not. I don't know. You would become kind of cynical of some of the signs, especially that people, you know, say that they have ex- they've experienced. Yeah. All right. Others. Francis Chan wrote a helpful book on this called Forgotten God, and one of his big arguments that was that Americans. Uh, more often than not, live in such a way where there's not even an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to act and to show show Himself and to help you or to serve you in physical, special, relational, financial ways. That we have so many comforts, securities, financial securities, uh, insurance that we have here that there's really no He's He's outside the building, <laughs> you know, and and uh, and so there's. And, and, and we would often argue that as wise living. Is it, is, do we, is it foolishness and wisdom for, for how, we're, how we're staying in step with the Spirit that Galatians 5 uh, talks about? Because I think that the purity is really good, and I think that we all across the Christian sphere emphasize, but I think there is this kind of interaction and more distinct help uh, prayer uh, that we can receive from the Spirit. All right, good thoughts. I think a lot of times, at least for myself or in general, we think that it has to be grand gestures, but it's like, it could be in the everyday workings, I think, like in your finances, in your day-to-day life, but we don't really think of it that way, so we just kind of ignore it and go on with our day. Yeah. All right, go ahead, Keith, and then we'll end on this. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. But it is through the Holy Spirit that he is going to empower us. I mean, he has sent the Spirit. And again, great great analogy with, the, with regard to the floodlights there. So I'm pleading with Christ that he would give me strength. And how is he going to strengthen me? By the, by the Spirit that I don't see. The Spirit moves and like the wind blows. You see its manifestation, but you don't see it. All right, and great word to end on.